This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Amen. Sallallahu alayhi wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathiratan ma ma ba'd. Welcome to uh, uh, our first session of the late night khatira from Valerian Islamic Center with Sheikh Umar Sulaiman. Uh, it's a, a, a blessing alhamdulillah. Sheikh Yasser Burjas. Sheikh Yasser Burjas. Alhamdulillah, it's a blessing for the light of Barakah wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Shaykh allowed us to live long enough to enter the last 10 nights of the month of Ramadan. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Tonight is the 1st, the 21st of course, which is the first night of the last 10, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. And I believe it's, a, uh, it's in itself is accomplishment. And for Allah Azza wa Jal being the night of, of, of Friday as well, that's a great blessing over here inshallah Azza wa Jal. And we believe we talked about uh, the discussion, what topic we should choose for these last 10 nights. And we came to uh, um, the recommendation of the book of Imam Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, Sayyid al-Khatar. Before we start talking about the topics, really, I wanted the Shaykh, inshallah, to give us uh, an idea on what this book is all about and uh, why this book in particular, and who even Ibn al-Jawzi was, so that people would recognize who this alam, this scholar that we're going to be talking about for the next few nights, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakallah khair, Shaykhna. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi man wala. Uh, instead of doing a, a full bio, I think um, just to, to really just get an idea of the author, because it's important sometimes to really know the author. Alhamdulillah, last year we did Al-Fawa'id from Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. And Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah is a very familiar uh, name uh, to people. Uh, in fact, he's often mixed up with an Imam Ibn Al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala who we're talking about today. So Ibn Al-Jawzi, uh, Abdurrahman ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala, Abu al-Faraj, he precedes ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. He's a 12th century scholar from Baghdad. And ibn al-Jawzi is the most prolific writer in the history of Islam. I'm going to repeat that again. The most prolific writer in the history of Islam. There is no scholar in history that wrote more books than him. Imam al-Zahabi rahimahullah ta'ala, who of course compiles the famous seer Alam al-Nubula, uh, the biographies of the nobles, he says that there is no person that he has ever done a biography on that wrote more books than him. Uh, there was a scholar that divided the years of his life by the amount of pages that he wrote and said that if you took the days of his life by the amount of pages that he wrote, they'd come out to 16 pages a day. Uh, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah said that I found over a thousand books from this man and he said, and I, I heard there are more that I haven't found. So what does that mean when you have a writer like this and, and what's sort of his background? He was a great uh, scholar of the Hanbali school and um, in fact was, is looked at as one of the main reasons why the Hanbali school took root. He was a staunch supporter of the madhab of that school of thought uh, in Baghdad. He was extremely knowledgeable and not just knowledgeable in the sciences of Islam. And I think that that shows often when you're reading a scholar that has a knowledge base in more than just the tradition, right? He's a scholar of history, he's a scholar of poetry, he's a scholar of grammar, he's a scholar. I mean, he, he tends to bring out all of these different elements of his own reading. Comes from a very educated background, uh, used to give large public addresses in Baghdad, uh, was known for his large gatherings, and it used to scare him, rahimahullah uh, ta'ala, from a spiritual perspective, the amount of popularity he enjoyed in his lifetime. It did scare him. Uh, there are multiple times where you find him uh, blaming himself, uh, writing very, very, very personal, deep, vulnerable thoughts about not letting the fame get to his head. And it's very profound because he has a very sharp pen. Uh, and, and I don't say that in a degrading way. Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala is a literary genius. 
And uh, you know when you're reading, like in the English language, when you're reading a Shakespeare type, right, you, you, you kind of navigate with that in mind, that sometimes you're gonna read some things that are gonna be like, whoa, very, very far, you know? And sometimes you're gonna read some things that are just deeply profound. So his writing is highly charged. Uh, charged when he talks about himself, charged, frankly, when he talks about his contemporaries, when he talks about some of the you know, uh, other uh, groups and, and other uh, scholars. Uh, he is a fallible human being, like the scholars are in general. Uh, and we are, of course, far more prone to mistake than, than they are uh, coming from the later generations. But he did write uh, sometimes pretty sharp against some of his contemporaries. And uh, also, against some of the groups. So one of his most famous works is Tarbis Iblis. Uh, which is The Deception of the Devil. The title would suggest something that, that maybe it's a personal Teskia book, but he was actually writing about the Mu'tazila and the Khawarij and some of the groups that existed at the time, some of the groups that had left the Sunnah altogether, uh, with a very, very sharp uh, pen, but uh, necessary at times. And I think that when we read him, two things are important to take into consideration. Number one, when a scholar has written that much you can basically find anything you want to in his writing. <laughs> you know, any narration that you're looking for, because he knows his audiences, right? Any narration that you're looking for, any, uh, any way of thinking that you're looking for, you can find it, okay? So there's a caution there that sometimes he's not doing the takhrij, for example, of the ahadith. He's not going through the authenticity of a narration because he's uh, listing out that narration in the capacity of a reflection, right? Mm -hmm. And so you don't take it as an authentic or inauthentic, but he's just talking about, you know, it's narrated this, it's narrated that. Uh, the second thing is that translations are awful when it comes to highly charged writers uh, or writers that write very strongly. Translations can be very sensitive. Translations in general are bad of these classical texts. This is one of the particularly bad translations that I've seen. I actually don't recommend the translation of this book at all. So Sayyid al-Khatir um, is, are a collection of his thoughts. And uh, some of them are, are very personal reflections on Teskia. Some of them are attacking trends that he saw at the time. Um, but very similar to Al-Fawa'id, very similar to the useful sayings of Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, they're just these gems. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a paragraph, sometimes it's three pages, and it gives you some room to reflect. And that's what uh, Sheikh Yasin and I chose to do, is just take some sections that are relevant uh, to Ramadan and this pondering on the hereafter and reflect on them. And I'll mention one more thing, by the way, that he's buried next to Imam Ahmed rahimahullah ta'ala, actually in Baghdad, which is very beautiful, uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wrote that down for him, that the, the person that he looked to as a teacher, though he was not a contemporary of his, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahimahullah ta'ala, the Imam of the Sunnah, he was buried actually next to him. Yeah. And we hope that's a sign of his acceptance uh, in, the, in the Ummah. SubhanAllah, his book, Shaykh, um, if I can think of uh, any contemporary maybe model of his book is what we call it today journals. It's more like his personal journal. What he's actually reading when he, his random thoughts, that's what's called captured thoughts, Sayyidul Khatir. These random thoughts that he thinks about as very deep, profound to us today. These were just him sitting there and suddenly something pops in his head and just like, wow, that's an amazing thing. So he writes it down. So his personal journal really, in regards to how he was seeking knowledge and how he was learning, how he's studying, how he's teaching, so these random thoughts to us, they are gems, literally. But that shows you, this is also the excess amount of knowledge that was coming out of his, mashallah, his writing, yani. Is that just the excess? But to go into the deep, profound aspect of his ilm and his knowledge is unbelievable. That's one thing that we should know about the book itself in its original text in the Arabic language, really. I also 
I'm not as, uh, I would say, uh, prolific in that kind of understanding of the English language like Sheikh Omar himself. But even myself, when I was looking at the translation, just like, oh my God, I wish I can really put a better translation myself. But the thing is, in the Arabic itself, you can feel the energy of Ibn Qayyim, Ibn, Ibn Jawzi, rahmatullahi ta'ala Things about Ibn Jawzi that we should also uh, see and, and think about. Uh, when they described him, they said, Qalu, he became so popular, his popularity was so, uh, uh, you know, uh, profound in the society. Qalu, kana aqallu ma yahduru fi majlisihi al-uluf. The least number of those who attend his session will be in the thousands. The least number in the thousands. Put things in the right perspective. Baghdad at that time, at its peak, at its peak in terms of its population, its popularity, and now how an amazing society at the time it was, because Baghdad was just like the top city of the world at that time. That's during his time, Ibn Qayyim, Ibn al-Jawzi, That actually, city had about a million uh, people in terms of population over time. So when you're talking about thousands attending when the population is millions, that's in proportion is massive number. It's literally a massive number. Where his popularity came from? Him being a prolific writer. Today, people get their popularity from what? From social media, from the internet. The more you are publishing there, the more you have uh, uh, trendy content and so forth, the more popularity you're probably going to get. It doesn't mean about the content, really, in terms of substance or otherwise. But back then, he has to have this popularity because he was writing, mashallah, regularly. And when we talk about writing, Sheikh, something you probably you, you didn't mention there, it wasn't on a computer, it wasn't on a laptop. <laughs> it was actual parchments and ink and, and all that stuff. Can you imagine 16 yeah, pages? A typewriter, right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine 16 pages of parchments with your own hand and you're writing ink, right? And if you made a mistake, oh my God. Right? You have to erase all the ink that you had before and then start over again. Can you imagine that? And still, mashallah, he wrote so much so that he became so popular. And again, people attend his sessions in the thousands. One last thing, with all this popularity, with all this ilm, with all this knowledge, mashallah, one of his, of course, you know, best thing about him is his spirituality. He was so spiritual as a wa'ad, you know, as a preacher to the world, not just profound in terms of knowledge and science of the, of the sharia, also in terms of the science of the heart. He was so sophisticated and at the same time so soft that when he speaks, they said hundreds of people they repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. People, they just kind of like uh, stop their old ways and turn, mashallah, to the path of the deen and so forth. Like he was very effective in his speech. But one thing, people of that nature, what do you expect them to go through a jama'ah? Trials and tests, right? Mm -hmm. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose to test him with something not so many people know about Ibn Jawzi rahmatullahi ta'ala. One of his kids. One of his children used to be, mashallah, one of those guided kids but then at some point in his life that kids is just kind of like switched paths all of a sudden he rebels against his dad he rebels against you know the path of guidance and so on and he chooses unfortunately to go astray uh, his father you know heartbroken obviously he writes a book to him and it's it's known as like bringing my heart to my son like, how can my son, you know, uh, uh, listen to me? It didn't work out. His son continued to do, to take that, his own path, unfortunately. To the extent that his son, sometimes knowing the value of his dad, he would go steal some of the books of his father that has his, his, uh, his own handwriting and sell them on the market for, you know, high prices. And that father was heartbroken that, unfortunately, he sometimes made dua against his own child. 
I want to mention this because I know that sometimes when we talk about ulama and sahaba and so we idealize them to the extent that we become, we make them unrealistic, really. He was a great alim as we heard, but at the same time, he had to go through challenges like everybody else. So I don't want you to think that what we're going to be studying over here is idealistic, that I can never reach that level with what I'm going through in my life. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You go through challenges, you go through tests, and it's purifying, inshallah ta'ala. But still, I need my heart to be attached, even though I'm going through those tests and those trials. It still makes me human more than anything else. Just I want to mention this before we start, inshallah ta'ala. And Shaykh, one more thing, and then uh, if, you, if you don't mind, I'll start reading, inshallah. Uh, but before that, um, one thing that always moves me about him is uh, he would be he would be seen actually, um, you know, sometimes he he'd, he'd come out he'd just see the crowd. It's before social media, Subhanallah, may Allah protect us. Honestly, it, it's it's scary. Like it's it's one of the most, you know, you got like the Sufyan Athodi of the world, uh, Rahimahullah, who if he saw three people in the gathering, he's going home. He's like, I'm not talking to more than three people at a time. Because he was so afraid of riyah, he was so afraid of that, that showing off. And Al-Jawzi rahimahullah ta'ala, he has thousands and thousands of people in front of him and, and he sometimes just take to a corner and cry and make dua. And so he has several of these narrations. One of them he said, Ya Allah, don't punish me so that the people don't say that the tongue that used to remind us of Allah was punished by Allah. So don't humiliate me. Like don't, don't make an example out of me because all these people think something about me and they're coming to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through me. So don't do... Don't punish me in, in, in a way that would make them say, oh, look, the one he used to tell us about punished him. And he's also the one, subhanAllah, who would say to uh, some of the students, if you are in Jannah and you don't find me there, uh, subhanAllah, I mean, then, then ask about me. I mean, that's, like, if that's not humility from the most prolific writer in Islamic history to actually go up to students and say, look, if, you, if you're not there, if, if you're there and I'm not there, ask about me. Ask about this, this poor person that used to teach you. And so, I mean, we convey that as well. Uh, uh, and, and in all seriousness, in all seriousness, make dua for anyone that benefits you, including us, please. Uh, make dua for anyone that benefits you, for their sincerity, for their steadfastness, and uh, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to keep us all collectively on the right path. Allahumma ameen. So, bidhanai ta'ala, we'll start reading inshallah ta'ala. So, we're on, I'm going to read it in, in Arabic, and like I said, we're, we're not going to do the translation, or we'll do, we'll do our own translation inshallah ta'ala. Uh, this is, Fas jawadi bu tab'i ila dunya kathira. ثم هي من داخل وذكر الآخرة أمر خارج عن الطبع ثم هي من خارج وربما ظن من لا علم له أن جواذب الآخرة أقوى لما يسمع من الوعيد في القرآن وليس كذلك So first he says that um, he talks about the, the way the self finds gratification, easy gratification in worldly pleasures over the hereafter and he says that the self finds easy gratification in worldly pleasure because they're tangible, they're quantifiable, they have an immediate taste to them. Whereas the self finds that the mention of the hereafter goes against those cravings because it's intangible, they're unable to grasp those things, they're unable to quantify those things. So when you're talking about guidance and you're talking about all of these things that are outside of the self, they find themselves unable uh, to, to grasp those things. And he said that you know, it might be presumed by the ignorant, someone who's ignorant might say that the attractions of the hereafter are stronger and more influential than those of this worldly life, considering the frequent warnings in the Qur'an in this regard. And he says that it's in fact uh, the opposite. 
uh, the opposite of what these people presume. And this is actually introducing a layer of Ibn al-Jawzi that's important. Ibn al-Jawzi has a major problem with false spirituality. It's actually one of the most refreshing things to read about him is that a person that eloquent could have claimed a certain station with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but he really blasts uh, the people who he calls you know, fake uh, people of tasawwuf, right? There's a tasawwuf, an asceticism, a zuhd, and a tasawwuf, a spirituality that's praiseworthy, that's grounded in the tradition, that you know, stops at the limit of the sunnah of the Prophet He really blasts those people who you know, tend to make this spiritual uh, trend that is unattainable and talk about how we don't need a Jannah. We just need the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we don't need to hear about reward in the hereafter. You know, we don't, you know, spirituality is just to live in nothing but prayer and worship and we don't have desires and, you know, people that aspire to be monks of sorts. He hated that and he blasts it frequently. And so he's saying that, you know, obviously the way we're created, the pull of the tangible and the quantifiable and what's in our immediate grasp is going to be stronger than the pull towards that which we cannot grasp and which seems intangible at times. So he's like, Allah created us this way and the, the goal is not to defeat your nature, the goal is to discipline your nature properly. That's the point that he is making uh, in brief and inshallah ta'ala we'll get into, uh, into a greater detail. And then he gives this example. He says, لِأَنَّ مَثَلَ الطَّبْعِ فِي مَيْلِهِ إِلَى الدُّنْيَا كَالْمَاءِ الْجَارِ فَإِنَّهُ يَطْلُبُ الْهُبُوطِ وَإِنَّمَا رَفْعُهُ إِلَى فَوْقٍ يَحْتَاجُ إِلَى الْكَلَفِ He says that because the example of, uh, of, of, of the, the self in this regard, of the innate nature, the cravings of human beings and their inclination to this worldly life, he says it's like الْمَاءِ uh, الْجَارِ you know, like, like running water, right? And it's moving downwards, so a downward stream. And he says that the reason being is that it is more convenient to do that than to strive to exert yourself to go upwards, right? So climbing a mountain versus going down a river. So he's saying that a person who submits themselves themselves to their desires is like a person that is flowing downstream. It's comfortable, right? It's comfortable. It seems natural, right? Why would a person want to exert themselves to try to climb towards something with the inconvenience of that, unless they have in clear sight the destination. So he's saying that the difference is not in the power of desire and how we crave or how we feel. The difference is in where you want to go. And that's why if you want a religion, if you want the elements of deen that are going to speak to your downward stream, you'll find it. You will find many feel-good quotes in the Qur'an, the Sunnah, and in the aqwal of the salaf, in the sayings of the salaf, you'll find things that always tell you that you're okay. You can be selective in your reading of religious texts and just sweeten the downward stream. But as human beings, we don't like climbing, right? We, you know, when you're hiking, if you don't have a clear end in sight or a goal to get to the top of this mountain, then that pain that you're going to start feeling in your thighs and that sweating, like, I don't want to do this. Right? Why, why even put myself through this? So he's saying the difference is not in the desire, in, in you know, strength of desires or how Allah created us. The difference is that some people prefer to be in a downward stream because you flow naturally. That's how we are. So if a person flows with their desires, right, they're just going to feel like they're going in a certain direction, but at the end of the day, they're going to reach rock bottom, literally, right? Whereas the other side of that uh, requires 
uh, a level of an exertion. And I'll just I'll, I'll end with this part, inshallah ta'ala, then we can, we can talk about it uh, a little bit, inshallah. He said, وَلِهَذَا جَاءَتْ مَعَارِفُ الشَّرْعِ بِالتَّرْغِيبِ وَالتَّرْهِيبِ تُقَوِّي جُنْدَ الْعَقْلِ فَأَمَّا الطَّبْعُ فَجَوَاذِبُهُ كَثِيرًا وَلَيْسَ الْعَجَبُ أَنْ يَغْلِبْ إِنَّمَا الْعَجَبُ أَنْ يُغْلَبْ Mm. Uh, very powerful, subhanAllah. He says, and that's why when you look in the deen, in, in the, the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us this religion, the legislator uh, being Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sometimes he gives us targheeb and sometimes he gives us tarheeb. Sometimes he gives us encouragement and sometimes he gives us admonishment. Sometimes he causes us hope. Sometimes he causes us fear. And, and he says that that strengthens the soldiers of the mind. You know, I was listening to Sheikh Abdullah Adur, Hafidahullah Ta'ala. Honestly, he was talking about fitness, and he was like, I like to listen to stuff when I'm working out that tells me that I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough, that I need to work harder, right? Like, I need to go, I like, to, I like someone telling me I'm not good enough when I'm working out, you know, so I have in my ear, right? So I need to go further, 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 further. And that's, you know, the, the soldiers of the mind, right? Like that discipline, that determination, like, I'm going next, I'm going next, I'm going next, next step, next step, next step. He's saying the discipline of the self, similar in that regard. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not just give you, uh, you know, the hope, the stuff that, that tells you mercy, rahma, 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 because that would not be good for you. That would actually, that imbalance, that imbalance, while it can be religiously, uh, you know, justified through selective reading, is actually going to lead you to the bottom of the stream. Right? If you have someone who is training you, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, walillah al-mathal al-a'la, to Allah belongs the greatest example, He's training us, training you to get to the next level, right? You want the trainer to sometimes, you know, roughen you up a bit. Next, no, don't fail, don't, not again. Go further, push yourself, right? You need that targheeb and that tarheeb. And He says that as for the nature of a person, he says that the, the, the strange thing, or the, the amazing thing, is not when a person yaghlib, uh, when a person uh, succeeds in overcoming uh, these, these desires. I'm sorry, he said it's not strange when you see a person that overcomes these desires. He says that rather it is strange that that person is overcome. So, you know, this idea that this is not an easy task, that this is actually something to strive towards, and this is actually something that we should look towards and that we should, uh, you know, th that, that it's a surprise. It is indeed a surprise and it is indeed an amazing feat when a person succeeds in overcoming their desires for the sake of that greater determination. But you should expect that most people are going to succumb to their desires because they don't have enough determination to go to the next level. So we can, yeah. we can stop and talk about this for a bit. Bismillah. Uh, I just add a few things from what you mentioned, mashallah. Ibn Jawzi, rahimahullah, I still keep saying Ibn Qayyim, subhanAllah. <laughs> Ibn al-Jawzi rahmatullahi here when he says jawadib al means the, the, the attractions or the, the gravity basically uh, of, this, of this natural innate. And he said that actually they're considered min al which means it's intrinsic, something from the inside. And what are these things that keep attracting you to the dunya? We know them today, you know, in the literature, in English literature and also other religions and so forth as the, 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 uh, the seven deadly sins, right? So when you talk about, for example, we talk about pride. That something is from the inside, right? Your pride will probably cause you to do so many things that would consider from the worldly matters, like fighting for yourself, even though it's not fair. You know you're wrong, but your pride is telling you, are you serious? Are you gonna let yourself down there? So you start fighting for yourself. That's what pride is about, greed. 
It's greed. No matter what you have in your hand, if you're never satisfied, it's going to make you actually go down to cheat and steal and, and all that stuff in the name of what? Just winning against somebody else or getting something that you see in someone else's hand. That's what greed is all about. Same thing when it comes to lust, desires. No matter how dignified you are, when some come to the subject of lust, subhanAllah, people sometimes they lose sense of, sense of, how, the sense of, of, of aql, that there is completely, just goes completely absent when they go and practice and go after their lust and so on. Envy, gloomy, wrath, and sloth, all these things that you goes about your desires, these are now what is considered like the gravity that keeps pulling you downward. Verses, he says, as for jawadab al-akhirah, the attractions to the akhirah, to the matters of the akhirah, this comes from the outside. They come from the outside. Why? Because you talk about Jannah. Where is Jannah? It's not inside, it's out there. Talking about ibadah and salah, that requires some effort. It's not something from the inside, right? So that's why it's not really that attractive at all. Uh, unless, of course, the person finds hidayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why Ibn Qayyim, rahmatullah, Ibn Qayyim al right now, in his book, Udat al-Sabirin, he commented on this. He goes, look, as an insan, which means a human being, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran did not speak you know, uh, uh, in favor of you as just being a human being. Instead, Allah Azza wa said about insan, قال, الإنسان عجولة, you're hasty. In the insan لكنود. The insan is always, you know, to his God, subhanAllah, always denying the favors of Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah subhanahu spoke about the insan, it says, كان ظلوما, he's always transgressing. جهولة, ignorant, kafura, denying Allah. So when he speaks about insan, that's the scripture of insan. So just being a human being is not sufficient to be praised. And that's why he says you need those elements, those attractions from the outside, and you can only find them through, of course, the, the wahi comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The guidance that comes from Allah azza wa elevates you from being an insan to a higher level, obviously. Which is why Ibn al-Jawzi rahmatullahi when he speaks about um, the example of the water. So obviously, you go with gravity. And we have so much so much, you know, uh, magnet, all these magnets that you have inside you that pulls you there, it takes you down. It's easier when you go with the gravity versus going upwards. However, if you go upwards, there's a reward for it. Yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it's hard. It's difficult. But by the time you get there, you could actually, you build muscles, mashallah. And the best example you could see even in nature, um, one of the most popular fish that you eat in the market is what, Jama'a? The salmon, right? And salmon, during the, the season, the breeding season, what do they do? They go against the stream. They go up the river, subhanAllah. And they go through, of course, all these dangers, including the bears that keep, you know, kind of smack them out of the water to get them out to feed the feast and, and eat them. But Sheikh, here's the interesting thing about the, the journey of the salmon. Um, of course, the salmon usually goes on that journey only once in its lifetime. So from the beginning of the stream all the way to the end, where they're supposed to have their breeding sites and so on. They say actually they go into that, to that journey, and once they lay the eggs, that's it, they die. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing, but still, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in, in them that instinct that keeps them doing this over and over again, over and over again, in cycles of life. So they focus on the journey, because the journey in itself is very rewarding for them. Absolutely. So sometimes us, when we see that, oh my God, I missed on a moment of winning for my pride. I missed on maybe a moment of winning for my lust or for my greed or for my that. You see this seems to be losing moments, but in reality they can be the rewarding moment that builds a spiritual muscle for you that will help to keep going against the stream 
as Imam Ibn Jawzi rahmatullahi ta'ala alayhi. And that's why uh, he says that in order for you to strengthen your muscles, that will help keep you going and forward against the stream, you have to help your mind with the soldiers of the aql, with what? With the ammunition of targhib and tarheeb. Constant encouragement and also warnings. These are the two major things that we always see in the Quran to encourage you to do good with the reward for the, in the akhirah and also warning against doing bad. Otherwise, this will pull you down with the gravity. So that's kind of like just what he said, wasayim rahmatullahi ta'ala over here. Shaykh, uh, one thing that he says, uh, uh, another place, he says that Adam alayhi salam, it's very interesting. Um, he said that before Adam alayhi salam had a soul, he was just a piece of flesh that you walked by in Jannah and you paid no attention to. But it was only when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala نَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِي When Allah Azawajal blew the soul inside of him that suddenly the angels prostrated towards him. Mm. So he talks about the praiseworthy nature of a human being. He says, we are the only creature that can go from being a worthless lump of flesh to something so honored and sacred that the angels would prostrate towards it at the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. So like that potential, the drive being like, and this is all internal. This is not something that you can, you can, you can, uh, you can quantify in terms of you know muscular density. Like, this comes from a place of al himma, right? Literally, an elevated pursuit. Do you want to go to the top of the mountain or not, right? And if you are not convinced that there is a mountain top, like think about when you actually go on a hike. If you've actually been on a hike, when you know exactly how many miles it takes to get there, you've seen the place, you've seen. You know, someone's told you about how amazing it is. You've seen the scenery, you've seen the imagery. Like, you want to get there because you know exactly you have yaqeen, you have certainty in the point existing and your ability to get there. So when you start to get tired, how many more miles do we have, right? How much longer do we have? And so that helps you develop the mental strength, and it is mental strength, right, to overcome the physical fatigue. That's a very uncomfortable climb, but how amazing do you feel when you get there? Right, so thinking about like subhanAllah Jannah, the Akhirah, the mountaintop is not here. Mm. The mountaintop is in the hereafter. You only arrive after you pass away. But the believer, and they have such certainty in the hereafter. It's like, I know it's there. The Prophet going there and telling me about it is more affirming than someone taking a picture of it and putting it on Instagram. Like Rasulullah if he said it, it's true. Right? I know he saw it, I believe him, and he told me how amazing it is, I really want to get there. I want to see that mountaintop, right? I want to see that place, Al-Firdaus Al-A'la, right? The highest place. But SubhanAllah, what he talks about here in this downward stream, I think there's also something very profound that the scholars mention about it is that one of the scary things about that is that you're not feeling friction. No. And when you don't feel friction, sometimes you don't feel a sense of urgency. And so a person can be in a downward stream and not really feel like anything is, is actually wrong here, right? Like I don't feel a sense of urgency or an emergency to, to actually start to go against the flow mm -hmm. uh, to get to a higher place. You know, subhanAllah, uh, to the example you mentioned about Adam when he was first created, obviously, it was just a piece of flesh down there. No one paid attention to him, really, until Allah gave him that ruh. Shaykhna, this example still exists with us human beings when we are born as well too. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the nature of man. So, Allahu akhrajakum min butuni ummahatikum la ta'lamuna shay'a. That he is the one who brought you out of the wombs of your mothers, knowing absolutely nothing. Mm. So we are born to this world with ignorance. And 
with all these seven elements that keeps attracting us to go downstream. Because that's natural inside you right now. But then, out of Allah's mercy and rahmah, He says, Then He gave you the elements, the instrument by which you can challenge these attractions. He gave you the hearing, He gave you your sight so that you would hear and listen and read. You would read and you would learn. And then you process this in the heart, in the mind, and make your choices. Otherwise, obviously, there will be no meaning for that test at all. If everything has been certain to us, alhamdulillah, then there is no need for us to worry about anything. So I believe that the, the example we mentioned about Adam السلام, still exists with all of us. So you guys are born with the natural innate to uh, follow your desires. That's natural. And that's why as kids, what do we do? The first thing we go after, of course, our desires. But then as you become mature, that's when you start becoming responsible for your actions because now it's your, your responsibility to make sure to tame all these desires. How do we do that? That's where knowledge comes into play. And one of the topics we're going to be discussing in the series, inshallah ta'ala, is the importance of learning and putting that into action. Because the whole taghib and tarheeb, encouraging people to do good and forbidding them from doing bad, this is all to strengthen the, the al-quwwatul ilmiya that the, the, uh, the power of knowledge by which I can control the power the power of action. A lot of people, they have so much passion and energy, they have the power of, of, of action, but if it's not equipped with the proper the power of knowledge really, it will be wasted because you'll put that energy in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. So that's extremely important that we know. Naturally speaking, we're inclined towards our desires and go downstream but it requires a lot of energy and a lot of effort to go upstream. And without the proper knowledge, you wouldn't know where exactly to make the jump. Sheikh, right. no. uh, I wanted to read the next uh, few sentences from the next section because sure. it's really powerful. This idea of how do I resist in the present moment for a future promise? If you think about the Sharia, right, and, and what we are trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish with our souls, you're looking for something in the future and that looking for something in the future has to be strong enough to drive you in the present, right? So you're really interacting with presence and future. And this is a profound sort of pivot that he makes of the how. You know, like, okay, you just shared with us that, you know, I need to find willpower. I need to find the willpower. And any moment I am given a choice between the obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I need to find enough pull towards the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala away from the disobedience. How do I find that pull? And this shows you his mastery of the soul. He says, He says that the one who does not think carefully about the consequences of their actions, then they are going to find that their desires will overcome them and they will harvest pain from the places they sought safety and discomfort from the places that they sought comfort. So what he's talking about there is he, he's saying that, look, if, if a person does not actually stop and think about, well, what, has, what have I been yielding thus far, right? When I sought relief in other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, did I find it? When I sought comfort in other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, did I actually find it? Like, basically the life experiences that I have already up until this point once I'm old enough to start to contemplate experiences, once I've got a collection of life experiences, right, and you have a collection of life experiences no matter what age you are, then that should make me actually 
really realize the power of that desire. So he says, uh, So he says that the way that a person becomes uh, connected to the outcome is by contemplating on the past. The way you get connected to the proper outcome is by contemplating on the path, uh, on the past. He says, so beautiful, subhanAllah. I hate these translations, Shaykh. <laughs> I'm going to try that. So he says, so think about the past. He said, your life is divided between the times that you obeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your life and the times you disobeyed Allah. So like he started off with, if you think about the way he starts off here, it's like, look, we're creatures with desires. Allah talks about Jannah for a reason. The Prophet talks about quantifiable good deeds for a reason, right? If you watch today's episode on the Mizan, he's, he's counting with the Sahaba, right? How many deeds on the Mizan? He's talking about planting forests in Jannah. He's, you know, Allah talks about the reward in Jannah because we are creatures with desire, right? So we just have to discipline those desires, not deny them. But he says, you divide your life into two. When you kind of look back, whether you're 18 or you're 80, you look back and you say, there are the times that I obeyed Allah and the times that I disobeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is how I divide my life, right? He says, so where is the pleasure of your sin and where is the hardship of your good deed now? Are you still tasting the pleasure of that sin that you committed that time you disobeyed Allah when you look back? Did it give you any lasting sweetness? And the time that you obeyed Allah, did it give you any lasting exhaustion? You know, you exhausted yourself last Ramadan and bi'idhnillahi ta'ala you caught Laylatul Qadr. Bi'idhnillahi we caught Laylatul Qadr last year. Bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. We pray that Allah accept it from us from all the previous years as well as this year. Allahumma ameen. Are you still sleepy from last year? <laughs> right? Are you still suffering from the fasting from last year? No. The, fa the, the pain of the fasting is gone. The, the, you know, the fatigue of, of the sleepless nights is gone. This too will happen after this Ramadan. So he's saying, where is the pleasure of the sin? Where is the hardship of the good deed? He said, at this point now, every single person has simply sailed along with the yield of the obedience of Allah or the disobedience of Allah. You took your yield, okay? So you took either your yield of new strength and a reward that you will one day see, which will be so sweet, right? And you took your yield of sin unless you seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for it. And that is, of course, the sa'ami farhatan for the fasting person is two rewards. When Allah relieves you after the ta'a, after the obedience to Allah, like how great do you feel after you do something good? As much as we have desires, how amazing do you feel after you do something good? You don't worship that good feeling, by the way. You worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's not the ultimate reward that you're seeking. But it is al-mu'min. It's Allah's hastening of the glad tidings to a believer. That a believer, your, your soul is at peace, at harmony. So think about it this way. When you're going towards the mountaintop, how good does it feel when you realize you've reached the halfway point and you take a break and you say, you know what, I've got the strength to go further. Okay, and you take your sips of water and you rehydrate. You feel amazing when you break your fast. You feel amazing when you find the reward. When you go back and you remember your moments of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm -hmm. When we go back and we think about our student days and we think about the days, 
you know, that, that, that you were in Bosnia, right? And you think, you know, you think about those old days, you know, and for you, Sheikh Yassin, old days, right? <laughs> like, like, I'm talking about like 50, 60 years ago, Sheikh. Um, nice one. I'm oh, no, sorry. I love you, Sheikh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just couldn't help myself. Still not going to go into my office. <laughs> when you remember your old days, fine, five years ago. Okay. Your good days. No. When you remember your good days, you remember those days that you obeyed Allah. You remember, you know, those of you that are no longer students that had great MSA days, okay? Or great days of activism and ibadah, you felt a high. Doesn't it naturally induce a smile? Yeah. Like, don't you go, wow, alhamdulillah, you know, those were amazing. I remember those days of i'tikaf. I remember those days of worship. I remember when we did this service initiative. I remember this. It's good. Imagine when you meet Allah with that. That's like, whoa, that is the mountaintop. But when you go back and you remember sin, does it do anything but cause you to hold your head in shame? Like it didn't, I really don't feel good. Not when I remember it. And the pleasure of it quickly dissipated. Shaitan told you it would be long, quickly dissipated. And now I'm further down the stream than I really needed to be. And I did not really find that happiness and that fulfillment of the soul that I was seeking. But Sheikh, I want to add also to this uh, something that we have to keep in our mind that also ha only happens to the, to the heart that is still alive. The heart that is already dead, when it starts reminiscing those past, those past moments of the sin, they might smile as well too. They might look back and just like, wow, these were good old days back in those days. Because they never did proper tawbah. Mm. They never looked back and they said, well, oh my God, I'm so ashamed of myself. Because one of the conditions of, of tawbah, obviously, is that first of all, you quit the sin and you look back and you regret it. But if you see yourself that you're looking back at your sins and you're disobedient of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you just kind of like feel so guilty that it's not halal anymore, or you're unable to do it, there you're in trouble. You're seriously in trouble because until that moment, you've been still dragged downward. You're not being actually pulled upward. So be careful with that. Ibn, Ibn Jawzi over here, when he talks about al-awaq, which means that the end results and the consequences and looking forward, obviously, he said, look, the, the, the sweetness of the masya of the sin is gone. And again, the fatigue of the ibadah is also gone. Both of them are gone. Means they don't last forever. But what lasts forever is the end result. If you truly believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you know that for the good deed that you've done, there is an everlasting reward. And for the bad deed, if you don't repent from it, there can also be, might be an everlasting punishment. So he says over here, look, you have to look forward to see where are these going to lead, lead you? And if you know that they're both going to have an everlasting effect, which one of the two would you like to keep, to keep for yourself? And that would be enough, I would say, repellent for people to say, you know what, I don't want anything to last to be bad for me, so I'd rather to focus on that which is right. But again, that's for the heart that is still alive. And we're going to talk about, inshallah, later on the qulub, what keeps the heart alive, inshallah, azza wa jal. There is so much we can talk about the subject. We have about 15 minutes, inshallah ta'ala. But I want to open the floor for questions and answers from our students over here, inshallah. So if anyone has any question on the subject, don't ask about zakah, okay? Uh, on the subject itself right now, if anyone has a question, please do so. Raise your hand if you mind. Over here. Oh, do we have anybody? We have the microphone. Yes, good. Here you go. SubhanAllah, this should be named like the regimen of building Iman, to be honest with you, because in the beginning it tells you, like, you know, it gives you the contrast of the river go flowing down, 
which is the flow of the dunya, right? And you get stuck in it, you're right. You don't have to do anything, you're just there, and it brings you down. But at the same time, when it tells you the higher things, when you want to like build up to something, it tells you mountain, go up a mountain. You know, it's much difficult, much more difficult going up the stream as opposed to going up the mountains. And you could always take like, you know, sides to get out of that river and go up. But I mean, the thing is, it, it, like, w w with this, uh, how can you build up your iman to be like, you know, uh, I guess, stronger to like, you know, kind of sort of see that because in the middle of the river, you're there, you're basically not able to see anything. You're just being drugged down, you know, especially like, you know, if there's other things and, you know, you get like that panic and stuff. Yeah. What's a good idea to basically just see this? Okay, I got to get out of this river and go up that mountain, inshallah. Barakallah. Um, I, I love the question, by the way, uh, because it, it, I think it, it lends itself to a, to a point. You know, some of the stuff, when you're talking about building Iman, it, it actually requires like a resolution on the part of the person. Like, you can hear the most beneficial knowledge in the world, and you can say in your mind, oh yeah, I'm, that per I'm gonna be that person. But it takes being resolute and saying, you know what, Okay, what, is this, what does this imply for me? And I think that one of the inconvenient facts that we have to come to terms with is that if you're not feeling the climb, then perhaps you're not reading right. Uh, in the sense that if you've reached a position, if Allah blessed you to reach a certain position and you got comfortable there, then that's a problem. Uh, what happens to the physically fit person when they stop working out and stop setting new goals for themselves? All of their gains are eventually lost, right? And in fact, it can get, be even harder to get there uh, afterwards. And so, spiritually speaking, discomforting oneself in order to make the next gain, what does that look like? Uh, what it looks like, frankly, first and foremost, is with the disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, there is nothing where the downstream flow feels more natural than when everything else around me tends to be trending in that direction. So if you start with the sins, everyone in my space does the exact same thing. I read that the Quran and the Sunnah find this to be uh, blameworthy. Yeah, but everybody I know acts this way does this. So I feel no urgency to challenge what seems to be a collective downward, you know, uh, stream. So that's why subhanAllah when we talk about those that embrace Islam and, and subhanAllah I'm always stunned like some of the text messages that I got today were just, I mean, about someone that was finding difficulty in his fasting uh, because of the challenges of the family. Like I, I think to myself, subhanAllah, you have people that embrace Islam and that in a moment become ghuraba, they become strangers to their own families. They face every single obstacle, but because they're in a mindset of overcoming obstacle, they're just climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. And you have people that grow up in pretty comfortable surroundings, right? Grow up amongst Muslims and stuff like that, but they're not willing to challenge a single cultural practice or family practice or societal practice or what's within their friend circle they naturally submit themselves because it's a very comfortable place. Again, I think that's what, the power of what Ibn al rahimahullah is saying here is that it's comfortable, it's comfortable, right? Like you're just flowing, you know? And so I have to actually feel some friction to make the next gain in my religion. That means that 
in a culture where things become more complacent, where people are less willing to advise each other or receive advice, because no one, no one even wants to talk, I mean, I'm guilty of that, right? I mean, I don't, there's, I, I, all of us, right, to an extent, it's like, we don't want to give nasiha or receive nasiha sometimes, like, well, you don't want to offend this person, so don't give them advice about something they could be doing better. Or maybe you don't want to receive the advice. You know, Abdullah Mubarak, rahimahullah, uh, people said to him, aren't you going to give us nasiha? He says, is there anyone left that wants nasiha? <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, if, every time he gave nasiha, people got mad at him. So he just said, I'm going to stop giving nasiha then, right? Like, what's the point of giving advice to people? So when you find people are less willing to give you nasiha, and trends tend to be going in a certain way, and you're flowing in that way, what does that mean? Like, you got to sit there and challenge yourself, like, am I living the most compliant lifestyle? Because the Quran and Sunnah are very tangible. The reward is not yet tangible. But the guidance is... Right, as far as the guidelines, am I living the most compliant lifestyle to the Qur'an and Sunnah? That's one. And then when it comes to good deeds, never become complacent. Mm -hmm. I can read more, I can pray more, I can do more, I can volunteer more. And, and that is, subhanAllah, the mindset, and I'll end with this. Ibn al-Jawzi, rahimahullah, uh, I think what, what makes him so powerful is such a vulnerable writer. He gets so mad when people praise him. He'll actually sometimes write entire pages like someone praised him to his face and he went home and wrote this letter to his soul. Right? About like, wait a minute, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You can pray this much, you can pray more. You can be this, your, your sincerity can erode. I, can I need to feel friction, but also keep perspective so that that's where the targhib, the hope comes. That I never lose sight of the fact that it's Allah's mercy that's going to get me to the next step. But I need to try to take the next step. You have a question for the sister side? Okay, we'll bring it to the brothers again. This side, anybody? Actually, we took from this side, so I'll take from that side, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Assalamu alaikum. I have a question, Jazakumullah khair, Shaykh. Sometimes we fall into holes and they're deep into sin and haram and probably outside of Ramadan. And we get this feeling that it's too late for a person. Mm. That it's too late for me to, to start doing good. I, I did something bad. And we, we think that maybe Allah is not going to forgive us for what we've done. Mm. And uh, how can we identify if, if we're in that stage in our lives that we can be forgiven by Allah? That's something that maybe a lot of people might go through. Uh, even brothers that were born and raised Muslim or converted to Islam or anyone. That, that trick from shaitan. Jazakumullah khair. SubhanAllah. I think this moment when someone starts realizing, look, I've done so much, so bad, I don't know if there's redemption for me. It reminds me of the hadith of the man who killed the 99 people. And then he went to someone who was knowledgeable, asked him, look, I've killed 99 souls. Is there any hope for me? And the man said, 99, you think Allah is going to forgive you? No way. So he finished him, he made him 100. And then he went again, but still, subhanAllah, his heart was not at ease. Still, he was looking for an opportunity to redeem himself. And he went and he asked someone more, more knowledgeable. He said, look, I, I killed 100 people, what do I do? Is there any hope for me? Now, he wasn't as scared of him telling him, look, you killed 100. No, you know what, there's always hope for you, right? But he was genuinely telling him, who is going to prevent you from coming back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? There's always hope for you. And therefore he said to him, he said, look, but the place where you are, the surroundings where you are, is not good. Why don't you go somewhere, such a such place, 
you have inshallah better opportunity for yourself so the first thing I would recommend the person in such a, uh, a circumstance like these is that first thing is to understand they're not alone in this feeling it's historic it goes as back as this man and all the way even back there so you're not alone in this feeling as a matter of fact the Prophet he advises against this he called this a shaitan acting like the wolf that the wolf only preys on the stray sheep. So what does it do? It comes to the flock and starts trying to attack on the side until it isolates one of those sheep, obviously, and then goes and attacks it. Same thing, these thoughts are the shaitan's work to isolate this individual. Telling them, look, you're so horrible. You are so bad. Don't go to that place. If you go to the masjid, you're going to soil the whole community. Stay away from there, you're too dirty, you do this. And subhanAllah, we just, again, we listen, we listen to them, we go downward as well. So that's one of the things that we need to keep in our mind, that shaitan's work is to isolate us. So we need to be careful not to follow that. And after that, of course, alhamdulillah, once we realize, okay, so there's still hope for me. Once you open that door, then you start climbing up, inshallah. One thing I want to add, actually, again, lastly, is we have to understand, like the Sheikh was talking about the friction part, right? Um, you have to realize there is no, there's no stop on that journey. If you stop, you start going downward. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he told him, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ وَإِلَى رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ He told him, when you're done giving your da'wah, he said, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ You need to stand up until you feel the fatigue of the ibadah. What does that mean exactly? Part one, give da'wah, right? When you're done, you're tired and exhausted, we assume that you're gonna hear what? Take some rest, take a break, relax, rejuvenate. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet go now and focus on yourself. Stand up until you feel that fatigue. Because this is what you need to seek Allah's help subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on the journey, we go from one step to the other one, from one hardship to the other one, until we succeed, inshallah, wa ta'ala. Wallah, I wanna add something. I wanna add, subhanAllah, you know, Shaykh, that hadith, a lot of times you hear that hadith and it's like, yeah, a guy killed people and, you know. He's a murderer, right? He's a murderer and, and you know, what's, what's, how's that possible? But it's distant. I actually had an incident, subhanAllah, uh, 2019. I will not forget it. I was sitting in front of a kid who was uh, uh, out of an at-risk. At he's an at-risk uh, kid and he was, I don't want to give too many details. Uh, he wasn't Muslim uh, at the time. And subhanAllah, he was... Uh, you know, he was caught for some petty crime and he got out and he was like working and doing community service to get out of it and we were talking. And you know, he, like, like many people that are in that situation, very guarded at first, a front, but got vulnerable very quickly once we warmed up to each other. And he, he actually said to me, he, you know, and it, it, it really, it made so much of this come to life. He said to me, if someone killed someone, though, you really think God would forgive him? And I could tell he was talking about himself. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he's, like imagine I had someone in front of me, a 16, 17-year-old, who's basically telling me that he killed somebody. And he's given up hope on religion and faith. You know, I gave him an autobiography of, of Malcolm X, and we're talking about that, and redemption, and remaking yourself, and reinventing yourself. And, he's, and that's when it just took a serious dark turn. He's like, yeah, but... Someone killed someone. You think God would forgive him? 
And subhanAllah, that moment was, was, was very real. And I remembered Abdullah bin Abbas, عنهما, an incident with him, where a man walked into his, his gathering, his halaqa, and he said, if someone killed someone, would Allah forgive them? And he said, yes, Allah would forgive them. There's a chance of redemption for that person. Even for murder, there's a chance for redemption in terms of tawbah. And then another person came in and asked the exact same question. Would Allah forgive someone who killed someone? And he said, no. And the man left and the students were completely confused. He gave a different answer to the same question twice. And they asked him why and he said, because the first person I could sense that he had done this and he was asking if there was a path back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said the second person was basically looking for a license to kill. Right? He, was at, he was thinking about doing it and he was asking that question with the intention to go forth and do it. When you fall in a hole, no matter how deep the hole is, you have a way back up because you're not the one who determines the length of the rope. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you his habl. No matter how deep in the well you are, the habl is there, the rope is there. You have to grab it though. You have to grab it. And what shaitan will tell you before you fall into a hole is that the hole's not that deep. And then after you fall into the hole, you're never getting out of this hole. <laughs> right? And that's the trick. That's the delusion of the deluder, of the chief deluder. And so, قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ أَسْرَفُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ لَا تَقْنَطُوا مِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَغْفِرُ الذُّنُوبَ جَمِيعًا إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْغَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ Say, O oh my servants who have transgressed against themselves, do not despair from the mercy of Allah, because Allah forgives all sins, because He is. See, subhanAllah, you're putting it all to Allah Azza wa nothing about you, because He is غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ Because He's all-forgiving and all-merciful. So it wasn't about you or your sinfulness or your righteousness in the first place. It was about your acknowledgement and your effort that follows. Sisters, any question from the sister's side? There's one in the... Oh, okay. So what happened to the boy? <laughs> the boy. That's a cliffhanger. What happened to the at-risk boy? The boy, that's Did you answer him? What did I answer him? Yeah. I told him absolutely. I told him that he should commit himself. I mean, I answered him. He knew that I knew. But it was just, it was, an uns it was sort of like an unspoken fact at that point. And the supervisor actually <laughs> kind of had this look on his face like, whoa, what just happened here? Because it was, it, was, it was kind of an, it was an interesting conversation. No. But you know one thing that, that I told him and, and one thing that I, I say to people that have gone down a path that dark is don't just commit yourself to Toba yourself, but commit yourself to helping people that you recognize are going down that path as well. Like commit yourself to a culture of redemption too. Turning people away. Like some, one, of the most, one of the most beautiful ways you can make Toba, especially with something like that, uh, when someone has committed a sin that involved especially harming other people, is to stop other potential harmers and abusers from going down that route create a better culture, be a part of changing, you know, stepping in. And, and the best, I'm telling you, the, you know, the after, the after school programs, the, the, the drug rehabilitation programs, the uh, gang rehabilitation programs, right? Who's the person that everyone listens to? The one that's been down that path. And Fulayr rahimahullah said, keep the company of the repentant because they have the softest hearts. The repentant have the softest of hearts. SubhanAllah, people that have been there, they have the softest hearts. That's, that's of the mercy of Allah upon them. And they have a credibility. Like, I've been there before. I know. 
I know what it's like, right? I know, I know what you're going through. And relatability is an important part of nasiha. The Prophet ﷺ, when he saw the woman in the graveyard and she was crying and, and, and bawling and, and wailing in a way that transgressed the limits, and the Prophet ﷺ told her you know, to be patient. She said, get away, you don't know, or what do you know about my affair? Not knowing that it was the Prophet ﷺ. Once she was told it was the Prophet ﷺ, it was like, oh God, I told the Prophet off. And the Prophet ﷺ in his adab, in his, in his perfect akhlaq, his perfect mannerisms, he didn't say, woman, do you know who I am? He walked away. Until someone else told her, you realize you just told the Prophet ﷺ to go away and that you don't know what I'm going through? But the, but the Prophet ﷺ could have put his foot down and said, I don't know what you're going through? Khadija, Abu Talib, you know, because you know, he could have gone through his kids one by one. He didn't do that, sallallahu But you better believe that when he spoke, alayhi salatu wasalam. Shaykh Abdul Rahman Bashir said this yesterday in a dinner. I loved it, I loved it. He said, Rasulullah was the most relatable person in human history. Because there was nothing you could go up to him with and tell him that you'd been through, except that he could be like, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> he was the most relatable human being in history, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You're an orphan? Yeah, I'm an orphan too. You suffered death of a family? Yeah, I suffered that too. Poverty? I know what that's like. Rejection? I know what that's like. Like there's no hardship you could have gone up to him with, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and told him about, except that he could be like, yeah, I've been there. The re- he's the most relatable human being that's ever walked the face of the earth, sallallahu alayhi wa Yes, sir, another question in the back. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. I guess uh, for me, um, my question's on the topic of standing or swimming against the current. I find I, I, um, I often find myself in a difficult position sometimes in going against the opinion of family members um, of, of what they consider to be good deeds, for example. In the sense of like, um, sometimes there's the rhetoric of like, oh, you know, that's a non-believer, so it doesn't really count as a good deed. And so that's the first part of the question. Um, I didn't, I didn't understand. I'm so can you, can you repeat the question again, please, in terms of what, in, what answer are you looking for on that question? I guess if you could hold the mic closer, sister, sorry. Sure. Go ahead. Um, so it's, the, it's to understand like where is the discernment of what is considered a good deed when, um, when sometimes the rhetoric is, you know, who we service is, might disqualify the good deed. Like um, at home, for example, we're told, I, I was told like, oh, you know, if it's a non-believer, it's not really a good deed that you know if you're helping non-believers instead of believers and there's always the the, the stance of like no you have to help only muslims oh, um, interesting so, so are you saying are you saying basically if i want to uh, do the right thing does it have to uh, does it only count if you do it towards a, a muslim family member correct and then okay and then and then also like standing against the current in that belief as well and, mm-hmm. and you know saying you know we're all humans and we need to just be good role models and examples, uh, period. But, you know, helping everyone. So sure, of course. How do you stand against that? And then... Um, how about one question at a time? Sure. Uh, so, uh, in regards to what you mentioned, when it comes to the subject of kindness, the subject of, of goodness and so forth, uh, we keep in mind that it transcends above the subject of religion over here. Being good to others, being with good akhlaq and good manners, 
it's, it's not about them, it's about you, it's about who you are. So you being a good Muslim, you have to have the good akhlaq no matter what. In regards to specifically being good to non-Muslim relatives, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it clear in the Quran, even if your parents, even if they are trying to push you away from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, if they push you away from Allah that you worship none but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, don't obey them. But then he says, وَصَاحِبْهُمَا فِي الدُّنْيَا مَعْرُوفًا But keep a very good relationship with them. Like he said, keep a good or keep a reasonable companionship with them. Which means, as long as they don't ask you to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, be nice and kind to them. There was a time when uh, um, Asma bint Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anha, she came to Medina among the early Muhajirin, the early immigrants who came to Medina. Her mom, she heard about her daughter, she gave birth to a child. Just to give a backstory on this matter. So Asma bint Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, the wife of Az-Zubair ibn Awam, the cousin of the Prophet she gave birth to Abdullah ibn Zubair. Abdullah ibn Zubair was probably one of the most celebrated children that was born in Medina. Why? Because for an entire year, an entire year, the Muhajirin, the immigrants, when they arrived in Medina, they were unable to conceive. And their children, they would die. So people, they would say they were cursed. The Meccans they would say, look, they're cursed. We told you that when they go to Medina, the humma and the allergies and the disease of Medina will destroy them. So it was, some people, they became so skeptical and they even started believing those kind of things. Until Asma radiallahu anha, she gave birth to a healthy child, Abdullah ibn Zubair. So that was the most celebrated child at that time, obviously. Said, oh my God, alhamdulillah, we're good, we're good. So her mom in Mecca, she heard about the birth of her child. So what did she do? She comes to visit. But she wasn't Muslim at that time. When she arrived at her house, Asma radiallahu anha, she stopped her mom. She goes, wait. Because for her, that's a new thing. Now I'm living in a Muslim community. My mom is not Muslim, she wants to come into my house. What do I do with this? I don't know, I don't have to deal with her. That was new. So she stopped her and she goes and asked the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, My mother, she came visiting all the way from Mecca to, to see me, to see my child. What do I do? And the Prophet was shocked and surprised that she had to even ask the question. He goes, Subhanallah, akrimi ummaki. Like, really? You should honor your mom. Like, he didn't even ask about did she become Muslim or otherwise. Simply, he said, just take care of your mom. So that kindness, no matter against who, obviously, it's, it, it counts to everybody. Now, I don't want to even make it a comparison. Even, subhanAllah, your kindness even is rewarded even if you deal with non-humans as well. You deal with, with animals. Still, that can get you to al-Jannah. So that's, I hope you keep that in mind, inshallah, no matter who they are, your kindness counts because of who you are, not who they are. Wallahu alam. Shall we take a last question from the brother's side, inshallah? Question over here. Um, I had a question about the, the journey of going uphill and how did these masters of Tasawwuf deal with the tribulations that came in their life and did they ever take a break? You know, maybe sometimes it's a philosophy of taking three steps forward and one step back, gathering yourself and then going forward. Like every Ramadan, we're going to push ourselves. And we might take a step back afterwards, and then we hope every year we elevate ourselves. So we, it's very hard to sustain the, the work ethic or the um, ambitions we have in Ramadan all year long. 
but we hope that every Ramadan we're building on some foundation. And so when, it could be trials, it could be life, it could be anything. Even Ibn Jawzi, when he goes through the, the, the trials of his, of his son, did it ever impact his, I guess, his work ethic when he came to his, his knowledge, his teaching? Did it ever, you know, I could imagine his reputation was hurt. Maybe he was, you know, felt embarrassed or hard. Did that ever impact his teaching? And what advice do you have for us when we go through hard times or just life is changing, a new stage in life, a new job, a new family, whatever it is, that may reduce the quality, maybe the quantity of ibadah or whatever we have, how can we keep the quality up? Allah said, wonderful question. My mic got cut. Who cut my mic? Which one of you guys cut my mic? One of my supporters. One of your supporters. <laughs> Team Sheikh Yasif. <laughs> cut my mic. All right. No. I'm watching you guys. I see you back there. I did. <laughs> oh, it was you? <laughs> well, in that case, the answer just changed. Um, listen, uh, Hadith Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, especially the narration of Ibn Hibban, uh, where he mentions, إِنَّ لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ شِرَّ وَلِكُلِّ شِرَّةٍ فَتْرَةٍ فَمَنْ كَانَتْ فَتْرَتُهُ إِلَى سُنَّةِ فَقَدْ اِحْتَدَى وَمَنْ كَانَتْ إِلَى غَيْرِ ذَلَكِ فَقَدْ هَلَكَ وَكَمَا قَالَ عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ The Prophet Sallallahu and every peak has its course. You got your high point, you got your low point. And in this narration, he uh, emphasized وسلم, the low point rather than the high point. And he said that whoever's low point is to my sunnah, then they have been guided. And whoever has it to something else, they will collapse. Uh, very important here. You know, If you read that hadith at face value, you might think low point being sunnah, does that mean? that the example of the Prophet has to be my low point. No, no, not the practice. The Prophet is talking about the creed, the methodology, the guidelines. Uh, because what, what, inno what innovation brought in terms of thinking was uh, unrealistic standards, unrealistic practices, and lots of disappointments. And that's why the Prophet told the three young men that came searching around his house, right, to, you know, asking his, his, his spouses about what his practice was like, and then saying, well, that's him. We need to fast all day and never break our fast. We need to not be intimate with our spouses. We need to, you know, the Prophet ﷺ said, whoever turns away from my sunnah is not from me. So he's talking about the methodology, The ulama emphasized the fatra, not the shirra. The low point, not the peak. Why? The peak is when you're feeling it. You're in stride, you feel great, you're in hajj, you're in umrah, you're in Ramadan, you are you're really feeling connected right now, all right? That's your high point, your zeal, okay? The low point being in accordance with the sunnah, the ulama mentioned is two things. Number one, that you do not abandon fara'ad. You don't abandon obligatory deeds in your low point. You don't abandon the obligatory. Number two, you don't engage in major sin, all right? So those are the two main keys with the low point. What does that mean? People that try to come in really hard, end up crashing really, really, really hard, you know? It's like Imam Malik Taala saw a really overzealous uh, young man who wanted to argue with him. He said, I want to debate you. It's like, you just became religious yesterday. I want to debate you, all right? Like, <laughs> all right, he's like, I want to debate with you, Imam Malik. Imam Malik is like, all right, well, if you win, what happens? He said, you'll follow my opinion. And he said, and if I win, what happens? He said, I'll follow your opinion. And he said that, a person who turns their religion into just an object of argumentation is going to keep on changing it. 
If your religion is just Jidal, like you're overzealous today, so you're fighting over it, arguing, mashallah, you became a, key, a keyboard warrior over the time, all right? You're going to be the complete opposite of what you are today. And that's exactly what they said. They said the man went from extreme to extreme to extreme until he eventually left Islam, okay? And you, we see that sometimes. Someone comes in super religious, super religious, and then they super go away, you know? Right? Like, they come in really quick, high, and then really, really, really low. Because it was unrealistic from the start. This wasn't a healthy journey for you. What does this mean for us? The average person. When I'm not feeling great, I'm still going to come to Jum'ah. I'm still going to come to Fajr if I can, Isha. I'm still going to keep some connection to the masjid. Maybe I'm not at the, the level I want to be. My three or five prayers a day in the masjid. I still want to come to one. I still want to come twice a week if I'm not coming up. You know, uh, I'm not going to give up the fara'id. I'm still going to fast Ramadan. I'm still going to stay away from drugs. I'm still going to stay away from zina. I'm not going to start watching this or doing this or going to this place or going to that place because I'm feeling low right now. I'm at a low point in my faith and spirituality. I still have a, a, a baseline here. And my baseline is that methodology of the Sunnah of the Prophet right? That I'm not going to go beyond this point. And that's the difference between uh, taking a break and actually descending, right? Taking a step back versus taking a step down, okay? Sometimes take a breather and reassess. I set this goal for myself in terms of a nafila, for example, <clears throat> right? That I really wanted to be a person who prays Qiyamul Layl. Um, I got Witr suddenly down. Like, Witr is like, that's it. I do Witr every night now. Alhamdulillah, this is amazing. I've never been this consistent with Witr. All right, let me add two rakahs. And the next thing you know, you, you, you got tired, things got in the way, you got really busy at work, and oh my God, I'm not praying Witr anymore. I feel horrible. Uh, so if two rakahs that I was going to do with Qiyam before that, gone. Well, you know, like, I need to get now, I need to get right back to the Qiyam and the Witr because the, I, I last left off with five rak'ahs. So if I'm not doing five rak'ahs, I'm failing. No, go back to one and then three. Build back your Witr habit. Reassess. Okay, how about if I just start adding two rak'ahs once a week and do that for a couple of months? See how that goes for me. Alhamdulillah, it's working. I choose a night that, that works for me. All right, it's working. Now, let me add another two rak'ahs there. See how that goes for me. Build slowly, gradually. But your baseline has to be, I will not forsake the fara'id, I will not forsake the obligatory, nor will I engage in one of the fawahish, and one of those shameless uh, open sins. Let me add a couple of things here. Uh, one instance that is very important, extremely important to safeguard these fara'id is actually to pray the nawafil. I know a lot of us you know, say, well, um, alhamdulillah, if I do the fara'id, mashallah, I'm good. Alhamdulillah, I want you to aspire to a higher level a little bit. Your sunnah, your nafil that you pray before Dhuhr and after Dhuhr and after Maghrib and after Isha, and when you come to the masjid, you pray two rak'ah before you sit down. You pray Dhuha Salah, you pray two rak'ah or four rak'ah at night and so on. All these nawafil that you pray, they, they will safeguard your faridah for you. Why? Because when you get weaker, you most likely are going to quit the nawafil before you come to the Faraad. But if you have no, no nawafil to, to safeguard your faridah, if you get weak, what's going to happen? You're going to quit on some of your Faraad. That becomes extremely dangerous. So safeguard your farida with the nawafil. That's extremely important. So make sure to build the habit and the good inshallah tradition of praying more than just the fard salah and more than just you know the, the sunnah of duhur and, and maghrib and this and that. Add more to it inshallah ta'ala. 
The second thing I need also to remind myself and everyone here is to focus on the a'malu bal-qulub, the heart. Again, I'll come back to the heart. Because we always focus on my salah. I always focus on my Mondays and Thursdays. I stop praying. I, fo- I focus on the dua that I stop doing and making. And, but rarely that we really we sit down and reassess uh, uh, the, the condition of the heart. And I've spoken about this few weeks ago in the Fajr Khatira one time about Al-Quwwatul Ilmiya and Al-Quwwatul Amaliya that your heart needs these two things the power of knowledge and the power of passion you know your, your power of passion to do I need to have the fuel for that and that fuel needs to be appropriate Ilm that knowledge that will immediately push you to do that which is better inshallah so to upgrade one of the way we can continue on the journey obviously is always upgrade your ilm and your knowledge. Ask yourself the question, when was the last time you opened a book? When was the last time you even learned something new? When was the last time you read something for Ibn Qayyim, Ibn al-Jawzi, or Dhabi, or Ghazali, or this or that? Besides these fancy quotes that you read on Instagram, when did you really read a paragraph from the beginning to the end? We are really that we are upgrading in terms of our knowledge right now. And our knowledge is becoming stagnant. And guess what? If the last time you read a book was maybe two years ago, that means you're two years behind. So if you start going downward, you know why. Because the fuel is coming down right now. So you need to make sure to keep fueling yourself with that proper knowledge, inshallah tabaraka wa ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan barakallah fikum. May Allah subhanahu wa bless you and your families, ya Rabbil Alameen. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make this a blessed night to all of us, ya Rabbi. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us among those who witness Laylatul Qadr, Ya Rabbil Alameen. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us our sins, our shortcomings. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept the best of our deeds, Ya Rabbil Alameen. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept our fasting, our qiyam, our dua, our adkar, our recitation of the Quran. Ya Rabbi, we ask you to accept from us the best of our deeds, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Ya Allah, we come to you this evening with all our shortcomings, our sins, and we ask you that you replace them with hasanat, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Ya Allah, we ask you to, to raise our status in this dunya and in the akhirah, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Amen. Guide our hearts to that which is most pleasing to you and make it easy for us to follow it, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Amen. And Ya Allah, show us that which is wrong and make it easy to stay away from it, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim. Keep our hearts sincere to you and only to you, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Ya Allah, we ask you to fill our hearts with love for this deen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Amen. Ya Allah, we ask you to forgive our families, our parents, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Have mercy on them, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim. Forgive our spouses, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Guide their hearts, Ya Allah. Guide the hearts of our children, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Make our families the comfort and the coolness of the eyes for us in this dunya and in the akhirah, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Ya Allah, we ask you to bless us with the Quran and the love for the Quran. Ya Allah, we ask you to give us the ability to memorize and learn the Quran, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Live by the instruction of the Quran, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim. Ya Allah, we ask you to soften our hearts to the reminder of the book of the Quran and the Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ya Allah, we ask you to soften our hearts to the dhikr of Allah, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Give us all peace and tranquility in our hearts, Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim. The way we gather in this, in this place, in this dunya, we ask you, Ya Rabbi, that you do not deprive us from getting together in Jannah al-Firdaus al-A'la with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam al-Salihin. Walhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Jazakum khair. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.